I talk a lot about my parents that, you know, they met when they were 15 and 16 and they've been together 30, 35 years and they've been through the ringer and they've been up and down and they nearly broke up and then they got back together and now in their 60s, they are more, you can't get a piece of paper between them. They are more in love than two people I've ever known and it's a very healthy love. Um, but I see how much work goes into that and quite frankly, I would rather spend my energy somewhere else. Um, in writing my books and having my work and raising a child. And that's not to say that I'm not interested in love and romance, but this pursuit of it as the central pillar to my life. Um, and I think a lot of that is like socialization. Like we, you know, it, 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 it's the, the speech in Flawless, isn't it? It's we, we, we teach girls to, pers to pursue a man. They can be amazing, but how amazing are they really without a man? That was Laura Jane Williams, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 140. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, so there's your little warning for that, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded. How awesome is that? And that's made possible by incredible regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, my hope is that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide for us. 
When you support this show, you're basically just saying loudly and proudly that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Black Lives Matter, the Venture Out Project, and the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. So you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on the Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. They seriously become something that I look forward to all the time. So once more, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Laura Jane Williams. Laura is an author, journalist, scriptwriter, public speaker, and self-described accidental influencer. She's the author of the Amazon bestseller, Becoming, as well as the self-help guide, Kidding, Childlike Solutions to Bullshit Adult Problems, which is out in the U.S. with Running Press in October. She's also Red Magazine's Talking Point columnist and Grazia Magazine's ex-dating columnist, as well as a cult blogger over at superlativelyrude.com. In this episode, Laura catches us up on all that's happened since she was a guest way back in season one of Real Talk Radio. She shares the story of getting her first book deal and how in the aftermath of the book's publication, she wound up completely burnt out and diagnosed with anxiety and depression. She shares what she did next to help herself heal, how she's approached her writing and career ever since, what she's working on now, and more. We talk about money, about the fact that success doesn't happen by accident, plus all of Laura's best tips for creating engaging content on Instagram. She's seriously one of my top favorite people to follow on Instagram, so I loved hearing the behind the scenes of her process. I've known Laura for what feels like forever now, and it was such a pleasure to have her back on the show. I hope that you love our conversation as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I'm, I like, don't have words for how excited I am to be back. It's been such a long time. You were the very first person that I ever recorded for for this podcast. And I, it's funny, there's a heat wave here in London today, and it reminds me of how much I was sweating the day you (laughs) interviewed me the first time because I was living in Rome and writing my first book back then. And like, so much has happened since. I know it's been like three years almost. Uh Yeah, yeah, almost exactly. And um, I hadn't quite sold my first book yet. And since then, I've sold sold that book, sold a second book. That second book is coming out in America. I've been featured in a third. Um, I've signed for a novel. I have a novel coming out next year. I'm like, if I could go back to the Laura Jane Williams sat in her 
borrowed apartment. I stayed in a friend's apartment back in um, back in Rome, and I was so worried about whether my like my dreams would come true. You know, in that specific, it's such a stupid thing to worry about because the only thing you can do is the work, and I was doing the work. I I was just so in my own head about whether the work would like pay off. I fucking did, babe. It did. <laughs> I mean, you definitely did the work. I'm so excited for you. I didn't know that you had sold a novel. Is that recent? Um, that is hot off the press news. Yes. And I don't know how much I can say about it because I signed my first NDA, Nicole. Um, so I signed an NDA around it. So I don't know how much I can say apart from the fact that it's out in the UK next summer that's 2019 so it's okay well then we'll have to have you back on to talk about that when that happens because we don't want you to breach your nda (laughs) (laughs) i was on holiday when i had to sign it as well i was like this is the chicest thing that has ever happened to me Okay, so there's a million things, even from just that little (laughs) synopsis that you gave of things that have happened in the last three years that I want to talk about. But I think going back a little bit would be interesting because one of the things I eventually want to get to is the burnout that I know that you experienced after the release of your first book. But so you mentioned being in Rome and working on that book and the book hasn't hadn't sold yet. Can you talk about what you put in place in your life in order to make writing a priority that first time around when it's not like, you know, you had past book deals or you had any kind of a guarantee? Because I remember you really kind of strategically doing that, or at least it seemed strategic and how you set yourself up to be able to focus on writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I mean, that's, (laughs) that's a bloody big question. Um, I think so I would have to go back all the way to being 18 years old, right? And typically at 18 years old, you go off to university. I know it's more common in the UK than in the US um, to take a gap year. I really, uh, and I've only recently come to understand why I am the way I am, that I'm very much, I want to do my own path. Don't tell me what to do. Like, I really don't respond well to authority. And um, I was literally at my parents' house and dad was trying to pick a film for us all to watch. And I said, why have you chosen that one? He said, authority issues in it. I like anything with a bit of rebellion. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, I am the perfect amalgamation of my mother, um, who just is the naughty child at the back of the classroom, and my father, who you cannot tell him what to do, to the point where I did the Gretchen Rubin four personality types. And Kelsa Prees, I'm a rebel. And I said to dad, I really want you to take this personality test because I think I know what you are. um, And I just want that confirmation. And he wouldn't do it. He is so much of a rebel. He wouldn't take the personality test to prove he was a rebel. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was like, of course, of course I am the way I am. But I only recently discovered this. Um, So I was 18 years old and, um, you know, a pig-headed little shit, really, and wouldn't go to university. I thought it was insane that they were making me choose a subject that could define the rest of my life at 18 years old. I was like, I'm a kid. I need to go see the world. I don't know what I want to do. And I think we touched on this last time that we spoke as well, like that importance of 
we put so much cultural emphasis on what is it you want to do. How about we let people full stop, but especially like kids and teenagers fuck up a little bit and figure out what they don't want to do because that had as much value in my life as anything else. So like my preparation for becoming a writer started with at 18 years old, making mistake after mistake after mistake. Like I flew to Sri Lanka to go volunteer without knowing where literally in the world Sri Lanka was. I did not know that Sri Lanka was at the base of India. I had no idea. Um, So I screwed around for a bit and I was a waitress and worked in toy shops and I traveled, I volunteered, I backpacked. Like I lived off uh, 50 pounds a week um, in Thailand for a little while. And everyone around me thought I was, you know, really screwing up. My parents knew better than to fight back, but ex-teachers, neighbors, um, there really wasn't a lot of faith in my path. But doing all of that and working some crappy jobs to pay for that travel, by the time I was 20, I was 21 when I was like, I actually think I can write and it would benefit me to get some formal training in this and also kind of go and get a degree just so that I had time. It wasn't necessarily buying the knowledge so much as just the space to experiment. Um And when I was at university, I think being a little bit older, I ended up graduating top of my class because I had figured out what I didn't want to do. So my objective for like, you know, in quotation marks, doing well um, was because I knew what the alternative was. I knew the alternative of doing shitty things I didn't want to do. And that kind of spurred me on so that when I left university, I was absolutely single-minded in my pursuit of getting published. Um, And that was really hard because my peers were going into graduate schemes. They were saving up deposits for houses. Um, The odd person was, you know, like moving in with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even putting a ring on it. Um, And I like moved to Rome and ran a children's language school in the evenings and smoked too many cigarettes and wrote drafts of my book by day. Um, and then came to London and had this book in my hand and, and came to London and London did what London does so well, which is make you forget why you were here in the first place. And I spent two years saying I wanted to get published, but really doing nothing about it. And then it wasn't until I got made redundant And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm never going back into an office job. I don't care what job I have to take in order to polish this book draft that I've got. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Um, And so that was kind of like the, the beginning of that wave towards actual publication. Um, But it was like, we're talking like my whole twenties really. Um, from, you know, leaving school at 18. And then my first book came out when I was 30. Um, So that was like, yeah, 12 years of fucking up. And then, hey, actually, this is the thing I want and being so singular in my vision as I pursued it. Mm -hmm. I'm always really curious when 
someone has a dream that's been a dream for a really long time that's been worked to, you know toward in a lot of different capacities when it actually mm-hmm. happens sort of the difference and it's not necessarily always a, a bad thing but the difference between the expectation of what that would be like versus the reality of what that was like and so I'm curious mm-hmm. what that was like for you when you're when you got this book deal and the book got published and this thing that you had been probably dreaming about and maybe even putting on a pedestal and romanticizing a little bit what was that like in reality versus what you thought it was going to be like the short answer is fucking awful (laughs) (laughs) horrific um and then the longer answer is yeah absolutely um i've long said um since publication you know the only thing worse than than chasing a dream and and not knowing if it will come true is realizing your dream and waking up the next day and going well shit what what do I have left to dream about um and because when I got made redundant from that job and I made the decision okay I'm going to do what it takes to write this book and actually it was cheaper for me to leave London and um I I moved to Bali and I was what you call a digital nomad. Um, And it was cheaper for me to do that and write some um, online articles and do some online courses and make my time my own than it was to stay in London. And that meant being the other side of the world from my support network, which didn't feel like a sacrifice at the time because it was in pursuit of this book. I was going to see my name on the spine of a book. It was all going to be worth it. And it wasn't until I came back to London um, and I had sold the book and it was supposed to be the best time of my life. And I realized I wasn't okay. And I, I, I was burnt out. Um, I think it took maybe three or four months to finally find the courage to say, I don't think I'm okay. I don't think I'm all right. Um, and going to the doctor and being diagnosed with a low level depression and anxiety. Um, and that, that was, I, I got medicated. Um, I, I was put on, um, low dosage pills, but enough to lift that fog. And it wasn't until the fog was lifted until that, it wasn't until the fog was lifted that I realized there had truly been a dark, dark fog, Um, And so that kind of tainted my experience of being published. You know, I got quite a lot of press around my first book. Great things were happening. People were saying wonderful things. And I was very, very, very sad. Um, And I think, I mean, so many people talk about this, but so often until you actually go through it, you can't truly know the lesson that uh, the external stuff is great, but unless you have the the support system and intimate relationships with friends and family and, you know, you're okay with yourself, the rest of it means fuck all, absolutely fuck all. And it was rough, and I lost a friend in that time um, who was going through the process of publication herself, and her experience was so different it really brought up issues between us and, and, and that made me very sad. And so I stepped away from writing for a little bit um, and nannied some local children. And it was just this bizarre thing of 
going down the road to take somebody else's children to school and on occasion being recognized at the bus stop on the way, you know, and the youngest kid was like, are you famous? <laughs> and and I'm like, well, no, but you know, there's social media and people have seen my picture. I said, I, I have a book, but I'm not famous. But she took it upon herself the whole summer. We'd be on the bus and she'd go, Laura Jane Williams, who has written a book. Uh, <laughs> she was like my own little, my own little PR following me around London. But like, I would take them to school and then like go to the BBC and do 12 radio interviews. And then I was able to like step out of Laura Jane Williams, you know, the brand, the author, and then go pick up these kids from school and just be silly again such a bizarre time and I never at the time never directly broached it with um the mum and dad who had hired me but on occasion she would the mum would like send me a picture of a national magazine and go oh my god are you in you know insert publication here today and I can't imagine what it must have been like for them to have this nanny who I was let it be known I was always on time I always showed up I always did a good job um, but was also like, oh, yes, that 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 is me in the newspaper. Hello. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. I want to go back a little bit and hear about your decision making process to decide to nanny and to do that little bit of a pivot. You know, you mentioned going to the doctor and getting on medication and realizing, hey, I'm not really OK. Some things have to change. What was it that made you decide to take this other job? Like, did you feel like it was consciously stepping away from the writing and the online work a little bit? Did you feel like you were needing a break? I'm curious about um, that decision. Um, do you know, it's funny because I, I don't remember a lot from that period because I was so in the trenches and so just sad, 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 sad. Um, I think I had a vague awareness of if I rely on this as my sole source of income, it will destroy me and hustling for the bylines to get the press around the book um, it all just felt very exposing and I, I knew enough to be like, I need something else. And I've worked with kids my whole life, right from being 18 and going to Sri Lanka without knowing where Sri Lanka was, um, <laughs> which my dad is like, well, what were we supposed to do? There's absolutely no telling you. And as we've addressed, now I know where I get that, uh, stubbornness from, um, I had worked with kids at 18. I spent all of my 20s going to Italy in the summers to work a summer job teaching English as a foreign language. Um, and I think I was like on Gumtree, just looking for part-time or temporary work so that I could pay my rent without feeling like I was doing it by... Um, selling pieces of myself because my first book was a memoir about a very difficult time in my life where um my high school sweetheart he dumped me and he married my friend so it was all like bringing up these ghosts um I was quite promiscuous for a bit um and I I got a little bit of press around that as well um so that chips away at your sense of self you know essentially being called a slut by 
the newspapers that your parents read. Um, and so there was something about when I saw this ad for looking after these three girls, like, yeah, yeah, I could do that. I want to spend my time. Yeah. And, um, I would have to be there at seven in the morning and I would probably get back home at about quarter past nine. And then at about three o'clock, I'd go pick them up and I'd be home at six, half six. So I had the days to myself and that very much made sense to me. And actually what I discovered was, I mean, it was murderous. Having to get up at six, half six in the morning was totally murderous, but it was a reason to get up. Even if I came home and went to bed, I would still having to get up at three o'clock that afternoon because these kids needed me to pick them up. It, it gave me structure and, and it gave me purpose. And I was so embarrassed. I was so, so, so embarrassed that my work would be taken less seriously, that my book would be taken less seriously. Um, but actually I think what happened is people took me more seriously as a human being, as a three dimensional human being. Yeah, I think you're you're touching on something that's really relatable, this idea, especially with writing or I think with any kind of creative work or any kind of solo entrepreneurial work. I think there's a fantasy of, you know, the uninterrupted time or if all, you know, if I had all the time in the world to write or to do like, I think that there's a very clear fantasy for that. And what you're speaking to really honestly is sort of the reality check. And maybe that is what some people want and really is the right fit for them. But I think for the most part, the pressure that comes from demanding that you're creative skill pays all of your bills or you know mm. this this idea that I'm going to wake up in the morning and I have nothing on my schedule other than writing and you know writing could be a stand-in for any other creative thing but mm. that, that's actually really stressful I think that like what you're speaking to about having structure having other people rely on you about, for other skills that have nothing to do with writing like almost makes more space then to eventually come back to the writing yeah, absolutely. And um, the amazing thing that happens is that that is where my second book came from. And I never set out in a million years. That was not my intention. I did not like choose the kooky path to then have something to write about. Like I was looking for a life raft and those girls saved me. I remember the first day picking up the kids from school and the six-year-old, the youngest one, slipping her hand into mine and saying, Laura, can we go on the swings? And I just thought, nothing else matters. Like, I'm here and this kid needs me and wants to have fun. Um, but um, I did start to document these, just these little moments online. I think for my own sanity, I used hashtag Laura Jade nannies. I hashtag most of my Instagram pictures so that they're like archivable. And once I made the decision, like I have to tell people I'm nannying because I don't know any other way to be. I cannot like conceal this part of my life. And people would say, one day you're going to write about this. And that was inconceivable to, to me. One, because that wasn't why I was doing it. And two, how could that be interesting to anybody ever? Um, and then after nine months of nannying for these kids, by which time I had, you know, I'd really come back to life. I, w I was off the medication. I felt a lot more balanced in, in myself. Um, 
therapy was amazing for me as well. It was very much a situational depression for me. Um, and yeah, so my publisher reached out and said, uh, we've done some trend forecasting. We want a book about, um, kids because that's going to be a big thing. So do you think hashtag Laura Jane nannies could write a book about the lessons the kids have taught you? And I was like, oh my God, what a better way to say goodbye to these three children who just, like I say, it was murderous getting up at six in the morning and, you know, come seven o'clock in the evening, I was exhausted, but I absolutely adored them and I still have a relationship with them now. So to sort of write a very short book about what they had taught me, I jumped at the chance and um, I dedicated it to them as well because when they're older, I want them to be able to pull it out, you know, off the shelf and go, God, that was our nanny. And like, wasn't I a cool kid? They <laughs> fucking were. <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to something that you said before about you know, when you decided to start posting little snippets on Instagram and using that hashtag and, you know, not concealing that you were a nanny, I think that also plays into a common fear of, you know, here's what it looks like to be, you know, a real writer, capital W. That has to be the only thing you yeah. do. The only, like, I think this is true for a lot of people who have, you know, whether it's a side hustle or, you know, their online business or they're in the coaching space and they also have a day job or they have another thing. And there's a lot of hesitancy to talk about that because somehow it makes, you know, oh, well, then maybe you're not as good or you're not good enough or there's so much, I don't know, like weirdness around that. And mm. so for you, like, was there a specific fear? Like, were you afraid of losing what you had built or like, what did that? feel like yeah like why would anybody buy this pink book by some girl that was a nanny like absolutely and it, it, that's really humbling it, retrospectively I'm really grateful that I had to look that in the eye because I very much now um and this is only two and a half years on uh but very much have a portfolio career of several income streams and it means that I'm I, I'm a project person so I go from project to project and I'm able to pivot very easily because they're they all fit into different parts of um of myself so I do some teaching because I love the teaching I um I'm working on my next book because telling stories is what I adore. I do uh, public speaking because I'm very good in, in front of an audience. Um, so actually what it's taught me is uh, just don't be so proud. Uh, that's huge. Just don't be so proud. Sometimes money is money. And I cannot make good work if I'm worrying about whether I've gone into my overdraft. I've got no interest in that life. Um, and it forces me, you know, I'd love to be creating all the time but actually I spend most of my time marketing what I do and it forces me to be creative in that marketing as well so I, I, I actually end up engaging with my work a lot deeper I think um, but it was a very humbling thing to to have to kind of like admit and also trusting that my audience would meet me where I was and and they did and I ended up um, 
saying that in the in the acknowledgements of my second book of like to everybody who encouraged me and let me be where I was like thank you I just think that's such a great gift to give anybody just meet people where they are but yeah horribly horribly humbling but I can honestly say I never you know what I will tell you actually this is an interesting um anecdote I think I was on a panel for a magazine um I actually ended up becoming their dating columnist but at this time I wasn't and on this panel there was um I think her second book was just coming out and her first book had literally sold millions in 30 languages like across the world. There was a journalist from a national magazine, there was a poet and there was me. And the reason I ended up getting the column with them, you know, this author who had sold all of these books was talking about her process and what she did. And I kind of interjected and said, I can't sit here in good conscience, you know, as a fellow author and and not let everybody in this room know. I I came from my day job nannying three children. Like I had a six-year-old tell me I look like a princess before I left the house and it's not a six-year-old that belongs to me. Um, I would love to be doing what you're doing, but I'm juggling being a published writer on a panel for a national magazine with something very, very, very different. And afterwards, there were a queue of people waiting to talk to me um, that was longer than the queue to talk to anybody else. And the editor of that magazine noticed. So when I submitted the proposal for the dating column, she knew that I had an authenticity that people responded to. But I very much in the back of my head, I had submitted the proposal for the dating column um, and knew that they were considering me. And I remember sitting on that panel and thinking, if I put my hand up and say I've come from my nannying job, that column's dead in the water. But it, it was a real thing of like, but I can't not say it to this room full of people who want to know how to write. I cannot mislead them through silence. Um, but fucking hell, it worked in my favor. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I was scared. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think it's so interesting that this pivot that you took into nannying wound up then being right the subject of your second book, which, as you said, was not right. planned. So will you no. share a couple of the things that you wrote about in the book, like some specifics of how working with those kids, embracing your inner child led to you healing that burnout in that period of your life? Yeah, Um I mean, it's so much. I think for me, the biggest thing was like playfulness. Like we'd learn how to be serious. Like it's a learned behavior. We're not naturally serious. Um, Definitely the difference between being like childlike and childish. So I very much wanted to write a book that was like, childlike is curious and playful and engaged and in the moment childish is like stamping your foot and throwing a tantrum that's 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 not what um what the book is about um I wrote about you know I remember um like the tantrums the youngest one used to have she would absolutely flip her shit but it was her way of saying this is my boundary you've crossed it. And then 10 seconds later, she'd be fine. And I really thought, you know, there's a way to navigate that as an adult where when you are transgressed in the moment, 
fucking saying something so that you don't have to carry around that grudge with you forever and ever amen or you know a week on Tuesday when you finally build up the courage to say hey that thing upset me um so the youngest definitely taught me about um having boundaries in that way the eldest one taught me how to be your own biggest cheerleader like there is not a story she told me where she was not like the central protagonist to it it was like her funny joke or this cool thing that she did and it wasn't like self-obsessed or gross it was like she knew when she'd done a good thing and she wasn't afraid to like tell you about it and I thought god how often as adults do we like, oh, we don't want to step on anybody's toes or we don't want to be seen as being, like, big-headed. Um, and then the middle child, she is, like, a gymnast. She loves to swim. And just the joy that she had in her body. Not once did I hear her criticize her shape or her size. Um, she was all about – I remember going to the park and she did, like, lift-ups lift from – she was upside down on the monkey bars and could, like, do a sit-up all the way – and like 180 degrees and like even this older boy near us being like whoa that's so cool she just had so much joy and pleasure in what her body could do that like I took up swimming when I was nannying because I was like oh if she can do it like if she can be that joyful and playful in this body she inhabits I want to see what that's like too um and also sleep the three of them collectively taught me if you do not get enough sleep, if you do not make sleep the central like thing to your life, you will be hell the next day. <laughs> and like as, as adults, have we not got to this point where we're like, yeah, I can go on four hours. I can go on five hours. Like, oh, I'd better, you know, finish watching this Netflix series. So everybody at the office tomorrow, I can talk to them about it. Like, babe, get your eight hours get your nine hours because if you do that life is so much easier um and definitely like me myself having to get up at six o'clock every morning like 10 o'clock every night I had to be asleep otherwise I just couldn't function um and I actually credit that with um even now helping to balance my mental health um you know I really struggled to eat properly when I had depression I just I couldn't do it and I loved the the, the only serotonin buzz that I got in a day could often be when I, you know, ate three cupcakes in a row. Um, but sleep, recognizing that when I did not get those eight, eight and a half hours, how um, different I felt the next day, that is now something I refuse to compromise on because it's the easiest thing I can fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel completely the same way. It's <laughs> it's funny that this is kind of uh, like a side story, but one of the things that's toughest for me about long distance hiking is that so far I have not been able to sleep well on trail. And I think uh, about like, I, I'll go days with just like not sleeping and, and I'm just <laughs> like, it's so terrible. Hopefully that will be different this year. But yeah, the, 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 how good you feel when you get this, whatever the sleep is that you need, like there is no substitute for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I had to work with children, Nicole, to like finally understand this. And, and that's why I feel so great about shouting about this book I wrote. And I keep wanting to call it ice cream for breakfast. Cause in the UK it's called ice cream for breakfast in the U S um, when it comes out in October, it's called kidding childlike solutions to bullshit adult problems. Um, 
But that's why I feel so great about being like, guys, like you should buy this book and go read it because it's stuff that is so simple. And yet it took me having burnout and depression and anxiety and hanging out with three under 11s for nine months to like finally figure out just how simple looking after yourself can be sometimes. Um, Literally treating yourself with as much love as you would treat a child. Yeah, I mean, but the problem with the simple answers is that we want the answers to be sexier. Like, oh, get nine hours of sleep. That's not, that's not like this like super sexy answer. Yeah. And I often laugh to myself about how I do know how to care for myself and they are the really simple things, but for whatever reason, sometimes I, I don't want to do them or I, I try to make things more complicated than it needs to be. So yeah, I agree with you that the simple stuff is often the powerful stuff if you actually do it. Yes. Yes. If you actually do it. And, you know, something that I focus on in the book is um, not beating yourself up for the stuff that you don't do. So like celebrate if you got eight hours last night, celebrate if you were able to take a five minute break from work, celebrate um, that you made, you know, a nice dinner last night. It's no good kind of, oh, I can never do it. Oh, I'm so stupid. Like I, I, I didn't get my eight hours last night. No, just focus on the good stuff and, and what you focus on expands. Um, it's no good beating ourselves up for what we don't do. And I think in this like hashtag self care obsessed culture that we have, um, it's too easy. Even when people say they're encouraging us, they actually make us feel really shitty for not like living up to that expectation. This whole book, and, you know, since then, my, my whole life, kindness, 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 kindness to yourself, kindness to the people around you, just tread gently, you know, that mm-hmm. that's what I advocate for. Yeah, I love that. So yeah. obviously, t- you know, you took this nannying job for a couple of different reasons. And one of them that you've touched on is money, right? And that's something in general that I really love and appreciate that you talk openly about, especially mm-hmm. in the realm of how it feels empowering for you to earn your own money and how you're working to master the attitude that you enjoy money and the opportunities that it affords you. Mm. And I would love to hear maybe perhaps like the origin story of this attitude. Like, have you always felt that way about money? Was it a pivot for you to be like, nope, I want to earn all my own money. I'm any, anything that you want to share in there. I'm very interested in. Um, I mean, I think probably, you know, having this book out and, and nannying and, and how that made me feel financially, uh, more secure than any of the months previously. So that was definitely like a catalyst moment of, Oh, the life I thought I was going to have doesn't, the life I have doesn't look like the life I thought I would have and very much um, being reminded of, because in pursuit of publication, I would do any job that was going. I was not proud because it, it was, it was for something. It was for something bigger. Um, and I guess I, I thought the book was going to be the magical thing that changed all that. Totally forgetting that uh, first books so seldom are like these huge breakthrough successes. And, um, I wanted to be committed to a life of seven books, eight books, nine books, 10 books, you know, maybe I always say Beyonce wasn't capital letters Beyonce with that first album, like 15 years ago, uh, 15 years ago this month, Dangerously in Love came out. Um, and some of the songs on there are really shitty. <laughs> like she actually has like a spoken word piece 
about horoscopes on there. Like it is a bad album, but there's also, you know, greatness in there. And you can go on and see in like Lemonade with the, the, the War Sunshire spoken word, you know, she's just built on her strengths and kind of got rid of everything else. I don't know why I thought I would be any different that like my first book would be the one to financially support me for the rest of all my days. Like that's just not how it works, but I got carried away. So I think nannying humbled me and then it became a lot easier to see how a portfolio career with several income streams meant I could turn my attention to wherever I thought my attention belonged or whatever was fun, you know, um, I'm just not built to do the same thing day in, day out for months or years at a time. So yeah, I think, and then recognizing that doing well in one area made me more covetable in another. So being able to charge more for workshops because instead of having one book, I have two, being able to um, charge more for anything on social media because I know I'm great in real life and that translates um, to online and on camera. Everything builds my confidence. And I'm not afraid now to say, no, it's I'm, it's not just that I'm grateful to be here and so I'll do for the unpaid panel. Like, I think I've got enough to say and enough behind me and enough experience that I would rather work for money or, or not at all. And I think that probably came, I mean, do you know, I would even go as far to say as like this year is the year that I've put my foot down and said, okay, I, I'm not doing anything for exposure. Like I feel like I have a reputation worthy enough of even a token paycheck. Um, and just being more honest with like my peers about money and sharing what we've charged or what we should ask for or um, just tips on how we've asked for more as well. And then experimenting with that and like, oh shit, the worst thing that could happen is somebody says no and comes back with a lower figure. Like I, I don't die and people don't hate me because who the fuck does Laura Jane Williams think she is? So yeah, just I I'm really I get really hard for transparency around money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. So within that topic, what's something specifically when it comes to money that you wish that more people were open and honest about? Um, how good it feels to make it. I think I always thought, no, I'm, you know, I'm an artist. The money is secondary, and then you get this massive, great big paycheck. And you go, well, fuck, this feels amazing. And now the rest of my work is better because I don't have to worry about, like, how to pay for my food shop this week. It feels good to make money. And I'm a single woman. I have um, I came out of a relationship at the beginning of the year. And that's because I knew I wanted to pursue parenting on my own. So now I'm I'm starting the adoption process as an independent parent. And so I will ask for money because now it kind of feels so much bigger than just 20 something year old, you know, millennial wanting to get paid. I'm like, I'm a 30 something woman needing to provide for a family now. So it's actually, it's made me bolder in pursuing 
money. Um, and especially from brands, like brands have got a fucking shit ton of cash. Traditional print media is dying. Um, online media just do not pay well at all. Um, but brands have got all of this cash too bloody right. I'm going to double my price and see what you come back with too. Right. You know, I need to, I need to buy clothes for this kid I'm having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, okay. So now that you brought that up, there's so much in here that I want to talk about too. Specifically, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the relationship that you got out of at the beginning of this year, and I've heard you describe it as the decision to be consciously single, single by choice. Can you share yeah. more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I really thought that like, oh, you, you know, you get a partner and then everything's okay. Like things don't hurt as much and, and, and you don't suffer as much and you have a buddy and you're braver. And, um, you know, I was a dating columnist. I dated a lot and then I I met a guy and the relationship was, um, I now recognize that, you know, there were signs of emotional abuse, that it wasn't just not supportive. Um, it was like I, my personality was actively chipped away at. Um, and I came out of that like, God, I just, what I've wanted for so long is my own family. And actually, when I came home from the launch party for ice cream for breakfast, I cried and was like, I don't know what all this is for if I, if, if I'm not coming home to kiss my kids, you know, the world is telling me I'm brilliant and I've done two books in nine months, but what is it all for? I want, I want children. And just always had a sense that I would do it on my own. So being in a relationship was, was very much like, well, do I want to be on, on my own or do I want to do it with you? And nothing ever felt good enough. I, I felt like I was like dating kids and, and I, and I just want to raise them And it was almost like by having this quite destructive relationship, I realized, no, that's not where I want to spend my energy. I talk a lot about my parents that, you know, they met when they were 15 and 16 and they've been together 30, 35 years and they've been through the ringer and they've been up and down and they nearly broke up and then they got back together. And now in their 60s, they are more, you can't get a piece of paper between them. They are more in love than two people I've ever known and it's a very healthy love but I see how much work goes into that and quite frankly I would rather spend my energy somewhere else um in writing my books and having my work and raising a child and that's not to say that I'm not interested in love and romance but this pursuit of it as the central pillar to my life um and I think a lot of that is like socialization. Like we, you know, it, 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 it's the, the speech in flawless, isn't it? It's, we, we, we teach girls to, to pursue a man. They can be amazing, but how amazing are they really without a man? And, um, being in this shitty relationship and coming out the other side, I was like, you know what? I am good. Like men are a nice extra, but right now mm-mm, I'm not interested. And, and, I feel like myself. Why should it be a bad thing? You know, I should be allowed to say, I don't like checking in with somebody and telling someone where I am and what I'm doing. I want to do my own thing. And yeah, a relationship just does not appeal, does not appeal at all. And it turns out so many women feel the same. Since I've started to talk about it and write about it in my column for Red, 
um, I got a lot of feedback from people going, yeah, don't feel sorry for me. I'm not married. Like it's the opposite. I'm having a lovely time. And I will tell you this, when, when I did go through the breakup and I, and I talked about it online, I guess people know I'm a safe space. Um, and sometimes it's easier to tell a stranger something than it is even your closest friends. But I had women messaging me saying, I'm having a baby with the wrong man because I'd rather have a baby with the wrong man than not at all. Or I've been married to the wrong man for 10 years. Or I don't know how to leave the wrong man that I'm with. Lots of emotional honesty in my inbox of good for you for knowing this because I'm miserable and don't know how to get out of it. Um, that's a fucking generous thing for these women to do, to say. And I will honor that. Love is beautiful, but it comes in so many forms. I believe it was the great Taylor Swift who said, you don't need a central romance to have a romantic life. And that's <laughs> absolutely, that's totally where I am. I'm obsessed with your honesty on this topic. Like, I, <laughs> so, so many things. <laughs> I think everything that you just said is, it's so honest because it does challenge a very entrenched cultural script and cultural conditioning, yeah. especially for women, that this idea that, you know, especially if you're looking at heteronormative relationships, that, you know, a man picks you and therefore you're worthy or, you know, that oh. that's what it takes to be a real adult. You know, you can be in your 30s and you can have these accomplishments and these things and you can be happy, but what's wrong with you that you're still single? And even if people aren't using that specific language, like that cultural conditioning is so, goes so deep that even yeah. hearing you you say that it's not that important to you or that even this idea that you can choose to opt out of the endless pursuit of romance. And I think not even just the endless pursuit of romance, but the endless pursuit of making yourself into the person that you think you need to be in order to be desirable to the male gaze. Yeah. And I mean, look, I I know, and I wrote about this in Becoming, I know exactly how to go out there and get laid. And that is you go to a bar and you ask a guy. And, and that worked for me for a very long time. Like if, if I wanted a warm body next to me, I could have a warm body next to me every night of the week. And babe, I'm like a solid six or seven out of 10. I'm not even a supermodel. Sometimes it's just the confidence to fucking ask. Anyway, um, but 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 I don't want that. That doesn't make me feel good. And I also, the energy, it is work. A marriage is work. A partnership is, is work. And, um, you know, my last relationship isn't a great example because it was a very dysfunctional relationship. Um, but there was just nothing left for the stuff that I actually cared about. But I felt I got invited to more dinner parties. I got more text messages along the lines of we'd love to see you both um, from friends who are in a couple because couples like to hang out with other couples. Um, I felt like my parents exhaled a little bit of like, oh, she's not a total monster and insane. Like, oh, she's in this relationship with this incredible, outwardly incredible man who seemed very impressive. Um the world treated me differently in a couple. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, couple privilege is a very real thing. Oh, couple privilege is huge. And coming out on the other side and being single, I call it now the single girl army. There is a way, no matter what intention your married or coupled up friend has for you and your relationship, um, 
you you come second. Sometimes the only people that can truly look after the single girl are other single girls. Um, and I do believe that. But that's okay. That's fine. I think it's it's being honest. And there is nothing that drives me crazier than like, oh, yeah, if me and Tom broke up, you know, we I'd be totally fine. Or if me and, you know, whoever broke up, I'd be fine. I'm like, no, nobody is fine after a breakup. And if you are in a relationship where you would be fine if you broke up, why the fuck are you together? Um, that makes no sense to me be in it and do the work, but realize that that is at the sacrifice of, of other things. It just has to be energy is finite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's true with anything. And I think that, again, this is like a, a thing to be honest about. Like there's only so much time. There's only so much energy. I mean, maybe love is infinite, but these other things aren't. And so if you're choosing to spend a lot of your time and energy on a relationship or on writing a book or on parenting a child, like that just means the way the equation works out that there is less time and energy for other things. And so it's like, kind of underscores this point of different choices are better fits for different people but like to Mm -hmm. the best of your ability make those make those choices with your eyes open because like you are sacrificing things for the things that you're dedicating your time to yeah yeah and uh, you know I appreciate that this can make me sound very harsh and very cold I am endlessly giving and endlessly loving and maybe that is part of my problem that I give so much to the relationship I'm in that there's nothing left over for the other stuff and and actually I have built purposely built a life and you know nannying these kids was like parenting training camp for the best part of a year of getting up getting everybody to school doing my work whilst they were at school and then still being there for pickup and then to take them to swim lessons you know I have designed a life where I can do that I'm earning good money now um, and, and, and so that's where I want to spend my energy on, on loving that kid or kids, on loving my work, on being a great daughter and a great sister. Um, there's not much left to be a girlfriend. Yeah. But, and even with that, I like what you said before of, I, I don't remember the exact words you used, but this idea of, I'm not totally ruling it out. You know, it's, it's, I think it's also easy to fall into these really black and white, you know, all or nothing yeah. declarations. Like, you know, I'm never going to have romance in, a, you know, this like traditional sense or whatever that I don't hear yeah. you saying that. It's like, this is where I'm pivoting. This is where my priorities are, but it doesn't completely close that door. It's like leaving yourself open to being surprised, I guess, or like not mm-hmm. holding on so tightly to any one vision because I think the like desperate pursuit of it and and the like desperate this is not for me I'm never going to do this like that kind of comes from the same place and so like when I'm hearing Mm. you talk it's not like you're saying you know romance is terrible nobody be in a relationship (laughs) you know like that's not what you're saying at all right exactly it's it's yeah love happens and love is is nice um you know, and there's reasons, seasons, and lifetimes, and how nice it would be to 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 meet a guy, and you know, because when I was dating, it was very much to find the guy who I would start a family with. So starting a family on my own, I'm no longer looking for the father of my children. I'm just looking for someone respectful and kind who I enjoy spending time with, and that is very dating like that is very different to dating to find the father of my children. Um, there's so much less pressure, but it also means that my standards can be a lot higher. I don't have to compromise on, you know, 
and any level of like toxic masculinity or inability to be emotionally articulate, I don't have to compromise on those things because I don't need you for your sperm or I don't need you for your bank account or I don't need you for anything other than just the joy of being together. Uh Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, the, the shortest answer is I've never wanted to be pregnant. Um, and babies bore me. Um, and I appreciate the limitations that I've got in my life that, um, you know, throwing a baby into your life is a, is a bomb. So if you are prepared for that, um, and you have a, you know, a unit that can support you all power to you. I do not have the emotional resources for that. What, you know, I talk about setting the team up to win for, for particularly with my close family, but just in general, setting myself up to win means a slightly older child. Um, I don't have an upper age limit. My lower age limit would be about four or five. Um, and for, you know, for a school-aged child, I have endless, endless love. I have endless time. I'm very financially secure. Um, and I feel like I have the, the resources to do that. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, domestic adoption in the, in the first instance through social services. We'll see what happens. Beyond that, it would be domestic adoption privately. And then we'd see fostering. I'm open to, to, to fostering. And so I'm learning more about my, my ability to provide and what my boundaries are the further down the process that I go. So I'm, you know, I'm learning and I'm absolutely doing it with, with, with eyes open. Um, and I'm so excited. And I mean, looking after these kids, you know, they are hugely responsible for this feeling of like, I can do this. I always had a feeling that I would adopt, but nannying. And like I say, it was like parenting camp and going, Oh my God, I am more patient than I ever, ever realized. I'm kinder than I ever gave myself credit for. I am more loving and aware than I ever, than I ever realized, you know, it's absolutely because of these girls that, that I feel encouraged in that direction. Mm -hmm. I have to say, this is kind of a side note, but it's very comforting for me to hear you so openly and also like clearly with so much joy, like this is what you want, right? This is the right choice for Mm. you. And it's Mm. so not what I want that it's, it's, it's sometimes I feel like it's really helpful to hear someone be honest about something where you have that me too reaction. Oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. Thank you so much for saying that. But I think that it can be equally healing to hear someone really confidently say the thing that they want. That's the opposite to the thing that you want, because it's, I don't even really know the point I'm trying to make, but it's, it's like reassuring for me to hear how much that you do want to be a mother and how important this Mm. is and what you're doing in your life to rearrange it. Because it's like underscores for me that, oh my gosh, I don't feel that way. I do not want kids. And that is fine as well. And it's like really nice to hear someone just securely being like, yep, this is what I want, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, I'm literally but uh, you know, moving house from London to the suburbs where my parents are an hour and a half from London, like physically rearranging 
my life to do this for, for the family that I want. And, you know, I've had boyfriends where it's felt like a pain in the ass to go to their house for the weekend. You know, like that was an inconvenience for me. And for me, it's that same thing. You know, I've had friends that are so in love, they would go to the ends of the earth. And I'm like, no, I, I'm good. I'm good. But on this other thing, oh, totally that, you know, I, I'm moving mountains to prepare myself for this future I'm purposefully designing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you just articulated it a, a lot better than what I was trying to say, which is like, we do <laughs> know what it feels like to really want something. And I think sometimes yeah. in the absence of that, it's easy to convince yourself like, well, maybe this would be fine. Like if you're kind of ambivalent or you're not really sure, and th that happens sometimes, mm. but we do know what it feels like to be sure. And that's not to say you can't change your mm. mind, right? <laughs> we can change our minds, but yes. that it's, you know, we do, you do know, you know what it feels like when you really want something or you really don't want something. And I have spent so much time, whether that's in relationships or in relation to career stuff, doing the mental gymnastics of, oh, I don't really need to get paid for this because I enjoy it. Or, oh, you just mm. like these things that we do in any area of our life to like sort of fit ourselves into whatever's happening and like justify that. And like, you know what it mm. feels like to be like to get the huge paycheck for the thing that you love and to be like, hell yes. Right. Or it's, it's just like yeah. a good reminder that especially if you haven't felt a hell yes in a while that that exists and that when that happens you don't have to do any mental gymnastics at all yeah I was actually literally just talking to a friend about that this morning who had a really rough year and just this past few months has really started to focus on this one particular thing and she said at the weekend she got to do it as a job and she drove away and was like fucking this this is it this is what she wanted for this year that she has felt lost and it's like yeah the hell yeah does exist and I'm all about the hell yeah like you know Nicole we're getting older we are not like these 20 something yeah we're in it for the ride like I either want to be hella excited or I want to save my energy for the thing that makes me hella excited like I'm so over oh well everybody else is mm -hmm. yeah everyone else is doing this so I should also be doing this yeah, you know, like, ugh. and I and I mean that from like getting married to starting a YouTube channel. Like, <laughs> I mean it across the board. Unless I'm really super pumped, I'm just not interested. And I tell you what, that becomes a whole lot easier when when you develop boundaries, particularly with social media. I think, and it's such a boring thing to say, but like mu muting those accounts that that make me feel shitty is like the best thing I do for my mental health. I don't owe anybody bullshit. I, I owe nobody nothing. I do not. I certainly don't owe strangers my follow just because I always have followed them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's being about like really mindful of what I consume. Um, so that I set myself up this team of one here set, set me up to win. I don't want to pollute my brain with these comparisons. Yeah, I also think part of setting yourself up to win has to do with consciously creating the community around you or the support system around you that values your life choices, particularly if those choices are less traditional. And like, this is something that I, I think I remember you talking about as well of that. And again, neither of us are just like are trying to knock the traditional choices of marriage. Obviously I'm married, right. Or, you know, having kids mm. or these types of things, but there is such a culture of celebration set up around, particularly for women, these benchmark things that 
that, you know, you never, women never get more likes on social media than when they get engaged or when they get married or these types of things. And it's not to say that isn't worth celebrating, but this, this idea that you've spoken about that it's important to also celebrate less traditional life choices and to make space for that. Mm hmm. And I mean, my, my own social media, my Instagram went wild when my brother sent me flowers to say, like, well done for getting out of a relationship that didn't serve you. And he did that after an argument um, that to protect the innocent, I won't get into too much. But basically, um, I was like, I, I was slagging off somebody else's life choices being like, look at all the praise and rallying that this person is getting you know, where does that leave me? And we had an argument about it. And his way of apologizing was to send these flowers and say, you know, I love you. Well done for getting out of the relationship that doesn't serve you. And I posted about that and people went wild for it of like, yes. And again, that comes back to not only celebrating the stuff that we love and enjoy, but also figuring out what doesn't work for us. And like, that is as important, right? So I did all those shitty jobs at 18 to realize I didn't want those shitty jobs and I was going to make something else work. And I've had shitty relationships that I've gotten out of because I needed to do that to know it wasn't worth my time. It it all counts. That's something else I talk about in the book, actually. It all counts. It's about like not having to file every experience away as good and bad. It all just is. It's all whole. Um, I've been working with Benefit Cosmetics as their happiness expert for the launch of a foundation that they've been doing and that is something that we come back to again and again and again that's like chasing happiness you don't chase happiness get it and then keep it forever it's like a process and actually if we appreciate that the process contains so many elements happy sad confused angry like and it all it's all the human experience yeah. And not working so hard to like be so quick to categorize, like you said, good or bad, and then only show the good and dismiss the bad. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. about this a lot. I think this, this came up last season too. I, I think about this a lot in terms for me of sobriety of for the first couple of years, I really leaned into the storytelling mechanism of like the old me, new me narrative, right? Like this was my old life. These were things I used to do and like sort of demonizing those things in order to prove that I had progressed or prove that I had changed. And I think that that's really common to be like, you know, these are all the the mistakes that I made, but like, I'm not this person anymore. Right. And it's kind of this before and after transformation thing that like you said, makes it seem like, okay, well now I've arrived and that's just it forever. And it took Mm. me really only until the last year or so to stop doing that, like to be more compassionate and loving for that former self. And also that it wasn't all bad. It's so easy to paint like a period of time in your life at like for storytelling purposes, like as this like really dark and terrible thing. And maybe it was that, but it was also beautiful too. And there was a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. And like you said, just letting it be more whole and letting it be messier. Mm-hmm. And I have said that, like, I blogged and blogged for years and years, like, knowing I wanted to build an audience for a book, I would hopefully one day write. Um, and I refuse to delete any of those archives. I mean, I've made them very hard to search. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But like, I refuse to delete any of those archives of like, where I was a bit stupider and a bit dumber and a bit more like didn't take myself as seriously or as kindly. Because it's evolution, right? Like an evolution is, is, is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So pivoting back to social media a little bit, you mentioned that one of the yeah. things that you do is to, you know, 
mute people that are making you feel bad or be really conscious about what you're consuming. Is there anything else that you have found to helps you that helps you stay on track with, I don't know, your stuff without falling into that comparison thing so much? I mean, my friend Dan said to me at the beginning of the year, stop asking other people for a seat at the table, build your own table. And I have just, that is what I have stuck with. Um, and and I haven't been happier with my relationship to my work. And that doesn't mean that I'm happy all the time now, but I feel a lot more balanced and a lot more in control that, um, you know, my friend today, she said she has this theory of um, you have your friends and family, you have your tribe and you have your peers. So your peers are like people in your industry doing similar things. You have your tribe, you know, like you have the real talk tribe, the people who respond to what you put out in the world. And you've probably never met them, but you they feel like friends. And then you have actual like friends and family. And she's like, you don't have to worry about the peers. It's about in real life, looking after friends and family, and then in your business, responding to the tribe. And for me, that is particularly on Instagram, but it's across social media. Like m- my people, there is genuine love and genuine respect and a genuine dialogue and so what I create is for them and I have to ignore what my peers are doing and like when I'm in a good space that's when I'll check in and see what everybody else is up to and very consciously say well done and I see you and like oh you know good job um but uh, and and that when I'm in a good headspace, that really helps me to reaffirm where my where I fit in the market. But I'm doing it from a place of oh, that's what I already knew, rather than like why don't I have what that person has? When I'm responding well to my own audience and building my own table, I can check in with what other people are doing and being like oh, I see how they're servicing their table. Like I'm over here feasting and I see what they're doing. Like I have my own feast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, checking in when I, when I feel better and, and, and healthier. Um, but for the most part, it's just about me, me and, and this audience, like, and they are ride or die. Yeah. There, there's something that you're speaking to that obviously is applicable to, to social media and career stuff, but I think extends past that. This idea that like action is the cure for fear or, you know, this comparison place I feel like is never more prevalent than when we're not doing our work, whatever that looks like. That if you mm. really do have your eyes on your own paper and you're doing the work and doing the things and focusing on your own stuff, a lot of that other, I don't know, a lot of those other fears and doubts, not to say they go away completely. And I think, like you said, it comes and goes in waves, but I have mm. found that the more that I am creating and doing the things that I want to do, the less that I'm rocked by what anyone else is doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, God, I remember uh, last autumn, um, seeing somebody's two book deal um, be announced. And I was apoplectic. I like I was furious. And then you kind of, you know, you have a bit of a rant and a rave and maybe say some unkind things that you don't mean you're just triggered. Um, And then you go, Oh, so she's got a two book deal for some fiction. What have I done to pursue my fiction? Oh, fuck all. This was a very useful experience to have perhaps I want to sit down and start working on my novel, you know, like it can be very 
helpful. Yeah, I think sometimes. So. I, mean, I think so too. I think that jealousy can be a very interesting compass if you look at it that way. And sometimes it's just, you know, a, a passing feeling. But I always think to myself to pay attention to the things who, you know, when that person posts where I'm just like so jealous, like what is that about? Is it because they're doing something that I wish that I were doing, but that I'm not actually, mm. if I'm honest with myself, working toward, right? Like I, I agree with you. I think there can be something yeah. interesting in there. I mean, so I'm uh, like really into the way that you use Instagram and you recently gave a talk right at the Blogtacular, I think it was called conference about, yes. so what was the topic that you talked on? I, we all agreed that the title for this was far too long, Nicole. So forgive me if I get it confused, memo to self, make the titles to my talks shorter, but it was how to create compelling Insta stories, no matter what size your audience. And the reason that I pitched that as a talk, I did it with, um, a girl called Carrie who is at wish, 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 who has like all those 200,000 followers compared to like my 20,000. Right. Um, but the engagement that I have on my Insta stories, I found out that industry average is 10%. So 10% of like your overall following will watch your stories. Um, mine is at like 35, 40%. So I literally have, um, people watching my stories, the number of people watching my stories, it's like typically what somebody three, three times as the size of me would get. And I was like, Hey, I think I've got something to contribute to the dialogue here. Then it's a very niche thing to be good at, but, but people stop me on the street and tell me, hi, I like your Instagram stories to which I reply. So buy a book. <laughs> um, <laughs> great Instagram stories doesn't make me money buy a book um but yeah I love Instagram stories I absolutely love it and I think that's why I do so well like I found the one very niche thing that floats my boat and so I'm going balls to the wall on it yeah can you share maybe one or two of the things that you taught when you gave that talk Oh my gosh, yes. I could talk about Instagram marketing for like three hours because I just adore it so much. And I refer to the, you know, I'm on Instagram to to market what I do, whether that's the courses that I sell or the, the books that I do or the talks that I'm at. But I call it intuitive marketing. Um, and I know that sounds really wanky, but I... I uh, you have to be listening to your audience. So like it blows my mind that people would get to a point where they, they like turn off DMs. And I'm like, how can you be creating content for an audience you are actively not listening to? That's insane. So I guess I would say respond to your messages because people will tell you what they enjoy and what they want more of talking to camera. So I don't post to Instagram stories as I go. I like save up a little bit of media and then I can make sure I'm creating a sort of narrative arc. I think where people go wrong is that they like snap a picture at the event that they're at and then tag the location and then wonder why that doesn't feel personable to people. So for example, I was at a brunch, a gospel brunch for Benefit Cosmetics at the weekend and it's stuff like, so I will snap pictures and get like a boomerang of me and my plus one and maybe record a video of the actual choir. Um, but I didn't post any of that until I got home. So I could make sure I was taking people on, on a journey of my own experience. So what I taught at the conference was always mix your media, do stop, start motion, do a boomerang talk to camera. People hate talking to camera. Um, 
and you know right away even wish 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 who I presented with she was like I never talk to camera because I'm not good at it like you are I'm not a natural and I was like whoa Carrie hush for a second like I taught myself how to be a natural so it's not a case of like oh I'm really good at talking to camera. Like it can take me five, six goes to like get the first talking to camera right. And then I find videos two and three easier because like I've set the pace and I've set the tone. Um, but talking to camera takes takes effort and nobody is a natural. You have to practice it being a natural. But then when you do it, I say talk to camera three times in a row and then that should be enough to explain whatever it is you want to explain. I don't understand why people do videos in a row, you know, 15 videos in a row. That's, that's, you know, I guess we have IGTV for that now. Um, but on Instagram stories, three max and learn to give less of a shit. Like these fuckers hang around for 24 hours and then they're gone. Right. So do post what you want to post, take people on the story of your day. And actually one of the loveliest questions that I got at the conference was, you know, I go to work, I do my office job and I come home. What if I don't have stuff to, to put on Insta stories? And I was like, you know what? Most people go to work, do their job and come home. So what if she was able to capture like the view out of the bus or taking five minutes to go for a walk, stuff that would inspire me as a fellow office worker to like engage with my day more. It doesn't have to be that unless you're on vacation or at some fancy event that that's the only time you have something to say. Um, and I guess I never get higher engagement than when, when I'm expressing an opinion as well, whether that's like a screenshot that I annotate or whether it's talking to camera, people just like to know how other people think. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a way to do that in an entertaining way and maybe a slightly duller way, but you learn how to be entertaining by doing it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. There's so much in here that I think is, is really valuable. This idea that, I mean, first of all, Instagram, as you said, you are on Instagram to market the things that make you money. It's not completely transactional. Obviously you love it. You've made great relationships. There's other things too, but like yeah. what you're speaking to, I think is, is again, something that we don't talk about this idea that like, it's okay to take, let's use Instagram as an example or like whatever marketing, it's okay to take it seriously. Success is not an accident. It's not like you woke up and all of a sudden were amazing at Instagram stories. Like you said, you, you know, we'll do five or six takes of the first video or like we really like this idea, I think, of things that come naturally or being naturally good at something or thinking that, you know, it must be effortless for her and, you know, what's wrong with me that it's not effortless for me? Like, well, mm. literally nothing because it's not effortless for you. Like you, like you said, you get good at it by doing it. You get entertaining, like mm -hmm. by continuing to try. And I think, and this could again, like relate to Instagram or to anything else, but this idea that like, nope, success is not an accident. And if you want to be better at something, you have to take it seriously. And part of taking it seriously is accepting that like, you don't have all the skills at the beginning and you're going to get better as you go. And the first time you talk to camera on an Instagram story is going to be nowhere near as good as the 200th time that you do it. And that's mm. true for literally everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would also say when you talk to camera, you do not have to fill that 15 seconds. That's where many people go. Even Busy Phillips gets that bit wrong, that she holds that button down until the time has elapsed. Just say what you got to say and get out. That's fine. Yeah. So I'm interested in a little more of your process. Do you have a schedule for posting and doing stories? Like how do you think about and structure the content that you create and post on Instagram? Like what's the behind the scenes of your process? 
Uh, well, sometimes I can't be asked, and so I don't because. I do get high levels of engagement. So I have to be in a place where like I'm willing to have that exchange. Um, and I think when I post, when I don't want to, you can tell and, and it falls flat. It's just not fun. And it's also okay to have people miss you. You don't have to document every second of every day to be existing in that day. When I do post, I mean, typically it's funny. I work alone so, you know, it's just me all day at my dining room table. So I guess the stuff that I would talk about in the office kitchen is the stuff that I talk to camera about. So if I catch a tweet where somebody on a reality show has been caught doing something dumb or the new, you know, the new Beyonce track drops or then I will kind of put my cultural commentary on on stories um and i guess i used to use twitter for that but i find twitter very cynical whereas stories is a lot more playful and i occupy a nicer energy within myself when i'm doing it and i guess once you once i kind of got into the habit of that commentary it turns out there is actually a lot to say sometimes and it's a case of oh do you know what literally the dots at the top of the screen have gone too small you know, let people miss me. Maybe now's not the time to keep adding to that conversation. Yeah. And now I, you know, I have a media pack and, um, in addition to being an author and a journalist and a scriptwriter and a public speaker, I've added in that I'm an accidental influencer that, um, I've acquired numbers through the pursuit of the stuff I love. That means I do get a shit ton of messages about the mascara that I'm wearing or where my blouse is from. So now I like take screenshots of that and then share that information. And that comes from, you know, that, that dialogue, that two way streets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's anything that people who follow you on Instagram would be surprised to learn about you as a creator, like this type of stuff that we're talking about? Um, do you know what? I was actually at dinner um, with a couple of people in the industry on Friday night and somebody said, oh, she's not like she is online at all. And and I said, I was like, that's that would that's my worst nightmare that somebody would say that or a group of people would say that of like, Laura, Laura is not at all what she's like on stories. And I work really hard to, I'm not here to like hoodwink anybody, so I hope I'm, I'm, you know, like I am online. I, I cultivate, I actively cultivate kindness, particularly through Instagram. And I think in real life, I can be a bit more judgmental and a little bit less tolerant, but that isn't the example that I want to put out into the world. So maybe if a follower in my community spent more than half an hour with me, they'd kind of recognize, oh, she's got a little, she's got a little acerbic bite. Um, but I hope that wouldn't come as too much of a shock. I hope. I mean, but yeah, and I think that a lot of what you're speaking to is, you know, this whole, like, again, obsession with like authenticity and being yourself and all of that. Everything that you post online is true. And also, it can't ever be all of who you are, and that that's okay yeah. as well. And you taught me that because you've written extensively um, about that historically and and that resonated. 
Um, I remember you were the first person who introduced the concept of like, I'm a human being and can feel two things at once. Like I can be really devastated about the world, but really excited about this smoothie I'm drinking, or I can feel really sad about whatever and happy about, you know, exist in dual in duality. Um, so 200% yes. Yeah. I think about that all the time, especially when I'm feeling judgmental about what someone else is doing or posting about or whatever mm-hmm. to remember like, oh, actually this person is just as complicated. Like we all want space to be our nuanced selves, right? And to be understood mm. and to have these multitudes. And I think that when I am not being my best, I don't give that grace to other people that it's fine mm. for someone to be devastated about this one thing and then really excited about this other thing. And to have like that, it's yeah, exactly what you just spoke to that that's, you know, just because what someone is sharing is one thing or is true. Like that's, it's not everything. It's just like a tiny, tiny snapshot. Yeah. True in that moment. And then the moment changes and with it, so does what else is true. Absolutely. So it's, it's really obvious to me that you care a lot about your work and about this path that you've created for yourself. But I think Mm. that it's also clear that it isn't the center of your life. And I'm interested if that was a conscious choice for you. I think it came from the depression and and the burnout and recognizing nothing is ever going to save me from myself. My work is never going to save me from myself. I can love it and enjoy it, but I I can only develop emotional resilience and intelligence um, outside of that. And I think getting to the point now where like, I know I'm going to be okay. I don't always know where my next paycheck is coming from, but I know I'm going to be okay. And, you know, my second book was um, quantifiably way more successful than my first book. I wrote it in six weeks. I was a lot less emotionally invested as I approach this novel it's an absolute romp. I do not think it's what people would necessarily expect from me, but I'm really, really, really excited to just write it, like not write it from the heart, but just have it exist as a, as a separate entity from me. It's not the be all and end all. And if the book did well, or if the book didn't do well, that's no reflection on like my worth as a human. Um, It doesn't make me a better human or a a less good human, you know, depending on what these external things do. So, yeah, you know, I'm established enough in my career now where I know I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able to pay the rent. I'm going to be able to clothe myself and, and this kid who will arrive to me soon enough. Um, I don't have to take it all so seriously because it doesn't, it's fun, but it doesn't mean shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the, it's like the both and where it matters so much and also doesn't, which feels another, like a weird duality to occupy. Yeah. But a beautiful one, you know, when somebody tells me that they've been affected by my work, that is a beautiful thing to hear, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to start preaching about how important my work is on the, uh, the experience of women or singletons, or I can just tell my truth. And if, if people respond, I am so thrilled. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell me, but I, I need to be, you know, living a life outside of that for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can't be living and dying with like what everyone thinks moment to moment about your work. Yeah. Because sometimes I'm going to drop a stinker. That's fine. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. I, and yeah, I'm at a point now I'm always going to be okay. So 
I don't I don't have to I don't have to worry that everything has to be like the the big thing. And actually, even getting a taste of what a big thing is, that is, I don't want to be under a microscope to that extent. You mean like what happened after your first book? Yeah, like it got so much press, but all those eyeballs on me, it's just not normal. You know, I don't know how the Jennifer Lawrence's and Mariah Carey's of the world do it. I mean, yeah, no, me either. That's that's not what I want. (laughs) Yeah. But also I think that comes with with age that maybe when we're younger, we think that being famous for whatever it is means that the money comes easier. But now I'm older and I'm like, yeah, but it comes with the money might come easier, but it comes with a a, a higher cost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what are you left with? Right. So uh, we've obviously talked about a bunch of different topics so far. Is there anything that we haven't covered that feels important to you that you want to share? What else is on your mind lately? What else is on my mind lately? I mean, what is on my mind lately is that if you have a platform and you are not using it to be even slightly political, then you're a waste of space. And if you do have a platform and there are things that you believe in, talk about those things that you believe in because it's been, it's more important now than ever. And literally, you know, and I'm not saying I do it perfectly, but I can talk about how I got diarrhea from drinking too much at the weekend within the context of, hey, did you know that violence against women spikes during the World Cup, whether your team wins or loses? Like, again, that duality, you can be talking about all things, but um, that's definitely something I addressed at the conference as well. Like, if you have a platform market yourself, do what you've got to do, but, but also speak to something bigger than all of us. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I keep coming back to that again and again and again. Care. Yeah. I, I think about that too. And I think that that's really well said. I also think that's a good place perhaps to start to wrap up. And as you might remember from last time, the way that we end these episodes are with some rapid fire questions. Essentially all eight guests this season are answering the same seven questions. If you're down to answer seven random questions. I am. Bring it on. This is the bit where I feel like I'm, I can't compare. I can't compare myself. They will have given the answers that were true to them. I must give the answers that are true to me. Okay. Yeah. Right. There's, there's no right answer. <laughs> pep, pep talk over. All right. What's one activity that you can always count on to make you feel good? Going to brunch. Like, I literally don't think I've ever had a bad brunch. And I've got no qualms about going out to a restaurant by myself either. Um, most Sundays I go for a coffee and a croissant and buy the Sunday papers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of dating yourself. That's not what you said, but something like that. Yeah. But that's exactly what it is. It's like, let's treat this, this trip to the cafe or the restaurant with as much reverence as if we were romancing another person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I enjoy it so much. So let's fast forward, let's say five years, and you're talking to your future self, or rather your future self is talking to you. What advice does this future self give you for what to do right now? She says, babe, it's all unfolding as it should. I love it's that. all unfolding as it should. Yeah. Who's one of your favorite people to follow on social media? Oh, the pressure. You? Okay. (laughs) You don't have to say that. (laughs) Pick somebody else. (laughs) Um, You and then um, 
I really enjoy Erica Davis, who is a British uh, fashion Instagrammer in her 40s with two kids who doesn't take the piss out of her audience. And I respect that. That's a hard balance. I love following Chris Mandel One, who is the entertainment director for a magazine here called Shortlist. And his agenda drives the agenda of the magazine that is so inclusive. Um, but he kind of shows like the lols behind the scenes on his stories. And I like that a lot. Um, and also Busy Phillips, because I do think she started to use Instagram stories at a time where it wasn't a cool thing to do and really utilized it to the point where like she got a book deal in her own late night talk show through just talking about her life. So she, you know, she's an absolute example of being yourself can lead you to exactly where you need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's one thing that helps you when you're feeling really overwhelmed or stressed? Aside from brunch, my favorite thing, and I've been talking about this a lot as benefit cosmetics, happiness expert is in any moment I have to be like, what do I need to be more comfortable right now? So literally, if I sit at my desk and I'm cold, why would I sit there and just be cold at my desk? Go get a pair of socks and put the kettle on and make a warm drink. Oh, turns out the world's not so terrible. Um, what do I need right now? Sleep. Okay, let's cancel plans tonight and make sure we get an early night. It's such a like deceptively simple question, but I think it helps me deal with the small stuff so that the bigger stuff doesn't seem as big. Well, at the heart of it, I feel like that's what self-care is. It's the real-time ongoing checking in with yourself of what do I need mm -hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have a really low tolerance for my own dissatisfaction as well. So um, I I'm not very good at, at like putting up with stuff and making do. Like, okay, let's, let's switch this up. Mm -hmm. Let's but solve, solve the tiny issue now so it doesn't grow into a bigger one. Yeah, yeah. it's self-care, totally. How do you typically spend the last hour of your day? Mm, on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> the way you said that. <laughs> yeah, on probably on Instagram. Like, I like... Um, if I go out, I'll come back and maybe just upload any videos from the night um because it kind of feels like ending my day that way like I don't want to the next day be posting yesterday's content um but even you know just seeing what my favorite people are up to or or if I'm at home alone um you know and doing the face mask and watching some tv or reading a book um probably I'll always just check in with twitter just to see what the I know this is terrible. Oh my God, I'm painting myself so terribly that like, I'll just get the top line news off, off, off that well-known credible news site, twitter.com. But yeah, it is. It's check my phone. Yeah. There you go. That's the honest answer. Yeah. Well, that's all we want is the honest answer. Yeah. Um, so the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recently find yourself recommending or rereading? I mean, I cannot shut up about Holly Bourne's How Do You Like Me Now, which um, does not have a U.S. publisher. But if people are willing to import, um, it explores under the radar emotional abuse in what would otherwise be 
a chiclet book and I think it's brilliant and I will champion that book to the moon and back. Um, Zadie Smith's On Beauty, just, I reread that every couple of years and I'm still blown away by the insight and how there is not a single wasted character in that book. Every single character, no matter how inconsequential, is like fully rendered three-dimensional and I could spend my whole career without hitting that benchmark in the way that she does. It's totally sublime. Um, and yeah, I guess they would be my top two. Everything else like falls in equal. So I feel like I can't give a third. I mean, like Elizabeth Gilbert, Eat, Pray, Love. That in terms of like opening the door for female memoir, she did a, that she did us all a big favor with that lover or loather she held space for women to tell their story and yeah. I, I think she should you know go down in the history books with that one yeah i agree with that completely so the last question if you could leave our community the listeners with one call to action what would it be maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take babe what do you need in this moment right now to feel even one iota more comfortable that's my question. Yeah. And then do that thing. And then do that thing. Cause you deserve it. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online. Obviously we talked a lot about Instagram, but do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, just a follow. And if something resonates, say hi, whether that's on the grid or in the DMS, I try and respond to everything. Um, I'm still in a position where I can do that, but yeah, definitely Instagram is, is, is where I'm hanging out and that's at superlatively LJ. And the book is available for pre-order already. I think you said that it comes out in October. Yes. So ice cream for breakfast in is already out in the UK and will be released under the title of kidding, uh, childlike solutions for bullshit adult problems in October through running press. So please do pre-order all pre-orders. That is one of the best ways that you can support your favorite authors. If they have a book coming out is pre-order it either through your local bookstore or through Amazon, because that's a little nudge to real uh, retailers that like they should stock up that people, there's an appetite for it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm going to put um, the pre-order link and everything else in the show notes. Laura, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much. It's just been a pleasure and just well done on the community that you have cultivated and the work that you are doing. Um, it's really a joy to see. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Nicole. You ready to answer five rapid-fire questions? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. What are you totally obsessed with right now? <sighs> okay, so... I obsessed is like such a fun feeling to try to get yourself back into in the moment. Um, so the things that give me that like fluttery, like yes energy right now. Um, the first thing that's coming up for me is, is this funny um, spiritual thing I'm doing right now, which I have dubbed church dating. 
um, I am in the midst of doing some journeying for myself about spirituality and beliefs and how little old me fits into the universe and what what is good and just and right and the way that I want the universe to keep working, keep providing for people in it. And for me, part of that journey has been in almost playing dress up with different uh, modes of being and different spiritualities and different belief systems to figure out what feels like it fits. Almost like like a Goldilocks-esque way of like trying a whole bunch of different bowls of porridge to see which one is the one that feels like it's the most me. Um, and I am a recent transplant to Boulder, Colorado. And part of me moving into the area and developing community and trying to really make this place feel like home for me is in finding people who are on kind of a similar stage in their own journey and who are sort of loosely thinking and feeling the same ways that I am about what what spirituality and or religion, depending on how how the cookie crumbles there, um, ought to look like and feel like to be in alignment with with my soul, with our souls. So I have been really excited. I'm pretty type A, so I've made a little spreadsheet for myself of all of the the religious institutions in this area that seem like they're worth checking out and have been to probably six different religious and spiritual institutions over the past um, past couple months, just trying them on to see what feels like it fits. You know, everything from going to a Catholic mass to Unitarian services to services that don't mention God or Jesus or anything um, to trying to see what's available in the Buddhist world in this area and trying to see what is available to give me sort of a 101 to the Jewish faith in this area. Um, and so it's been really fun to do the research and see just what are all the different ways in which people are connecting to each other, connecting to the world, connecting to the environment. And it's it hasn't netted out in anything clear yet, but I don't know that this type of journey is ever supposed to. So I think that the the seeking and the curiosity and the meeting new people and hearing new sermons and new ways of thinking about e- things each week yeah, is what I'm really obsessed with right now. It's such a fun answer. Um, <laughs> what feels frustrating for you lately? Like one thing or area of your life that you're currently finding challenging? Oh, I am finding it to be a real challenge right now to, to sort of take my own medicine. So I'm a, I'm a career coach. And so that means that a lot of my daily life is in helping people to do what they say they want to do, but have been trouble doing because of stuff that's in the way. And I am in a real season of needing to do that exact same practice myself, of figuring out why I keep saying that I want to do a certain thing or build a certain program or write a book. And I'm not taking the action and creating the time to make it happen for myself. Mm-hmm. So- it's, I mean, that's such a human relatable thing. Like I'm like nodding so much this, I mean, I'm fascinated by this question, like how we close the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do. And this idea of like, and this isn't necessarily exactly what you're saying, but this has come up at a couple of the, um, live events this year, this, the phenomenon of like watching yourself make bad choices or not even bad choices, but like watching yourself not do the thing that you know you want to do and how it's like, it's so frustrating and so relatable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so I've tried peeling back the layers a little bit for myself on this. And 
what I'm, what I've sort of found through coaching work and working with others is that when you say you want to do a thing and you're not doing the thing, it's because there's something else that you want more than the thing you are saying that you want. And usually that thing you want more isn't something that immediately reveals itself, but it's something like, I want security. I want safety. I want to not change somebody's opinion of me. or I don't want to change. I'm afraid of changing who I am and how I relate to this community or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, what's coming up, which is so frustrating, is I have a fear of being visible. But I don't want to write the damn book because if I write the book and I put it out there, that's real visible. People are going to see me. People are going to see what I believe and what I think is true and what I've seen work for people and what I hope will work for other people. And I'm opening myself up for rejection in that way. Yeah. And so (laughs) putting my coaching hat on and being like, Lisa, you are depriving the world of a book that could really, really help them because you're afraid that one person's going to write a bad Amazon review. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just like blowing my mind in all of the best and the worst ways. Oh, yeah. So, so that it. is what I'm frustrated with right now. Yeah. What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into? Hmm. This is a good one. Hmm. I, so this is sort of funny and it, I am prepared for this to sound terrible. Um, I just like, don't, you know, when people have the ASPCA ads on TV and they just start tearing up and they are making these donations and going and working at humane society shelters and things like that. I just, I am so happy that other people really, really care about making sure that all the puppies get loved and hugged and cuddled and walked. Um, but I just can't get into animal welfare and animal rights as like a thing that I want to put my time and my money and my energy behind. I mean, there's plenty of different things out there if everyone, <laughs> everyone can't care about everything at the same level. So yeah, it's sure. True, true. But it feels sort of particularly ironic because I'm a vegetarian and that's sort of one of the, the tenets of my vegetarianism is like, I don't want anybody to be suffering needlessly, animal or human. So it just is funny to me that while I care enough to make that sort of a lifestyle decision, I just cannot care any further than that. Like I want to give all my money to the like refugee immigrant children. I want to give all my money to changing the education system. And that is just not where my heart is. So for those of you listening who care a lot about animal welfare, I am so grateful for you. And that is so not me. Mm -hmm. What would you say is your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? My secret weapon in my healthiest relationship is to trust the other person has good intentions and doesn't mean to hurt me. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. taken a long time to get there because that was not usually my way of being, my modus operandi. But I think that just having that belief come to the surface of, of course, the other person didn't want to hurt you on purpose. Of course, whatever their reaction is, is purely what's happening in their present state in the moment. And that, you know, sometimes it's going to be thoughtless or sometimes it's going to be, you know, instinctive, impulsive and not properly sort of thought out and not taking into account what you're wanting and needing. 
um, but they're never trying to hurt you is such a game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, uh, the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? I wish people were more open and honest about the things that don't feel good in life. And I, I say this because I, in the work that I do, I talk with a lot of people about sort of like what they are wanting and what's missing in their lives. And I think that there is this, this cultural norm around sort of painting everything with an extra rosy paintbrush. I'm like, yeah, things are good. Like if somebody asks you, how are you? And, and the automatic reply is like, oh, I'm doing well, doing well. Instead of like taking a breath, taking a pause and saying, hmm, how am I feeling? I'm feeling a little bit hungry, feeling a little bit sleep deprived, feeling a little bit whatever. And I think that if we all started out conversation at that level of of leading with our microscopic truth, you know, not like the nice, tidy bow on it truth, but the one that says like, hmm, maybe things aren't quite as, as lovely and great and easy as I'm painting them. And we were willing to dive on in and sort of like you do heal ourselves out loud with one another, with radical authenticity from the get go. It feels like it would be so, so much easier for us to get what we want, communicate when we've been hurt resolve stuff and just feel like we're living more in alignment mm -hmm. with who we truly are. Yeah. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I'm very grateful. And I would love for you to share two quick things. One, why you decided to support the show and then what you love most about being in our community. Well, I decided to support the show because um, when I took a look at, well, I've been listening to the show since the first season and it actually took me a while to become a supporter. And I had like a little bit of shame around that of like, if you've liked this thing for so long and you have been listening to Nicole for years, like, you know, why, why didn't you do it then? Why don't you like, and just like all these internal yucky scripts that were happening in my brain. And I think for me, it was the moment of like, well, it's not too late like, go do something, go support her. She's doing this for freezies. She is putting this out there and you have learned and grown so much from it and learned about all these amazing humans. Like what's one thing you could do as a gesture of thank you. And this idea of like, what's a gesture of thank you has been really on my mind and heart recently. Cause there's so many humans out there who like you are putting amazing things into the world and doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. And the, the sort of way that I hope that the world and the economy will work is that when people are creating amazing resources and things for other people, that there will be some sort of, whether it's karmic or whether it is more immediate monetary opportunity, gift, whatever, that comes your way to thank you for it. I think that's, that's sort of the way that I want the world to operate. So. If that's my belief, I can't not donate to Patreon. <laughs> that's so well said. I love that. Um, and do you have a favorite thing since you've joined? Um, I so I know that the book club is happening monthly, and I never am able to participate in it at like the proper monthly time. But I love seeing the books that you are picking out and recommending, and then what your recaps are at the end of the month, because then that gives me some great fodder for what can be next on my reading list. 
That's awesome. Yeah. I love the book club. It's so much fun. It's such like a fun treat to be able to choose a book that a wide range of people are going to get to read too. So that's a lot of fun. Um, the last thing, can you share, um, I guess, I mean, you did share where you just moved to, but where you live and a social media link in case people want to reach out. Yeah, I am coming to you live from Boulder, Colorado, by way of Washington, D.C. and New York. So it is a a long time coming to my little nature paradise here. And um, to find me, I am not super active on Facebook or Twitter, but you can find me on LinkedIn at LinkedIn.com slash, I think it's just slash Lisa M. Lewis. Perfect. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be awesome. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 